Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is a lineup re-listen today as we take some time during the relative off-season to get organized for a big 2022. Before we get to today's episode, however, a brief foray into the world of free surfing. Last week, we mentioned that Logan Doolian's Snap 4 became available on YouTube, where it is still very much viewable. Radical surfing from the likes of Benji Brand, Parker Coffin, Clay Marzo, Zeke Lau, the Moniz brothers, Jack Robinson, Mason Ho, and many, many others. Absolutely worth a look, so go check it out if you haven't already, and let us know who impressed you the most. Additionally, Australian filmmaker Justin Gain released Repulse on Vimeo. Narrated by two-time world champion Tom Carroll, Repulse tracks the progression of four generations of Australian contenders. The original Pulse series of films was the Australian answer to Taylor Steele's Momentum movies, and they set the tone for the 1990s and 2000s in terms of who you needed to watch in the men's surfing arena. With the 2010s largely dominated by the rise of the Brazilians and a double-named surfer from Hawaii, the Australian males need to rally in a post-Cooley Kids world. Repulse is the reference point for who we should be keeping our eyes on. Go to Vimeo and check it out immediately. And please enjoy the lineup's conversation with Donegal's Eski Britain. The good old clap take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's <laughs> out your boxes. All right. Eski Britain on the lineup. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, it's the afternoon for you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just out of the water here in the Atlantic in the northwest of Ireland in Donegal, warming up for the cup of tea. <laughs> Technology's amazing. <laughs> uh, it is. I was going to ask if you surf today, but that's that's excellent. So so you're in Donegal today. You know, are you with anybody? Are are you by yourself? Yeah, I'm. There's family all around, so we're really lucky because Ireland's in a lockdown again. But um, everyone's close by, and we can still get to the sea. And so, yeah, I'm at actually at my birthplace where I grew up, um, and where my mum and dad live, and sister. And so it's it's a, and everyone surfs, so it's a good vibe. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I I, I like starting these at the moment with with kind of getting mm-hmm. real time feedback on how everyone's doing and. And, you know, how has the, the past year's experience been for you in Ireland, presuming you've been there the whole time? Yeah, it's the most grounded in one place I've been in my life for a very long time. Um, you know, both with my, my research work and my surfing, I'm, I'm usually on the road with it a lot, um, traveling. Um, and in one part, personally, actually, it's been amazing to have that kind of stillness and groundedness at this stage in my life um and my partner started a farm market gardening um so that's been a really cool way to actually like literally reconnect with the land you know getting your hands dirty and <laughs> learning about that but yeah I guess the importance of play our connection to place has really come home to me um and then, then the importance of relationships and how we create connection in, in these times as well, which can be a real challenge um and there's definitely you know things I'm missing um the you know the in we're just it's just what we're realizing what it means to be human and what what it is we really value most and it's just been 
interesting, kind of fascinating to see. It's not that surprising, I suppose, but the huge pull um, nature has had for people and the need to be outdoors, outside, and how important that access is. Mm. Um, and in Ireland, in, in particular, it's quite the water is having a huge pull on people. Uh, and the need for people to just to go to the sea, maybe people who haven't been in the sea since their childhood are now like going in and sea swimming. And so that's quite um, remarkable, too. You know, at, at one point we were calling these uh, COVID episodes, uh, the lineup at low tide, sort of implying <laughs> that it would be a, a, low tide. <laughs> a, a, a exactly. We were like, it's going to be a temporary thing. But, but, you know, here we are 12 months later. Mm-hmm. And really, as, as you've articulated in a situation, whether you know, it's personally or in our families or the broader surfing world or any other communities we exist in where we're kind of in uncharted territory psychologically and emotionally. And I'd imagine it's something that you've thought a bit about both um, personally and professionally. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of strange. I mean, professionally up until now, I was really intensely um, immersed in academia and uh, working at a university here in, in Galway. And just on a lot of big research projects, um, amazing kind of opportunity to collaborate with a great mix of kind of scientists all on oceans and human health and also doing some teaching. And But just realizing um, how relentless that pace was, um, mm. that there was just no moment for pause. There was no ebb and flow or, or low tide. <laughs> it was just all go. Um, and yeah, how important, like how much is, as humans, and especially when it comes to our creative thinking and accessing that creativity, we need those pauses. Um, I just didn't realize how quite how <laughs> extended this one would be. Um, but it's definitely, I think for me, it's something I've been thinking about for a while anyway, but in terms of our, our notion and concept of time is definitely being drastically altered as well. And mm. I think some of our relationship with time has been really unhealthy in any case. So it's interesting to see, yeah, how do we find a a new rhythm in in all of this without it, you know, it feeling like this for some people, like I suppose like a groundhog day almost with another (laughs) lockdown. But um, the uh, the flip side of that is that, yeah, we're, we're more present to noticing these sort of changes in our own environment again. You know, I think it, it, it was Groundhog Day the other day, and I think most people in my life were like, I'm not oh. even touch it, touching this joke at the oh, moment. Like, it's just, but, okay. but, we don't but, even have it in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the, it's interesting, right? Because the surfing world and the academic world, are, are it's not that common that they overlap just broadly, right? And, and you've had this amazingly unique experience of a, which I want to get to, you know, like, sort of a, a surfing existence. And then what we'd, I'd like to talk to is sort of an existence in the institutions of surfing and then into mm. academia. And, and as you're talking about now, almost sort of this collective pause that everyone's using to reevaluate. But I am curious, like, so, so what specifically for the listeners is your current profession and area of focus and, and how did you arrive here? Ah, oh, good question. Um, <laughs> When I ponder on myself, <laughs> um, I guess in a nutshell, I'm a I'm a, considered a marine social scientist. So in in the world of science, a real kind of hybrid, very interdisciplinary of pulling together strands from. I have a background in environmental science, um, and I focused within that much more on this human dimension, the human relationship with our ocean. That's kind of then morphed and evolved into uh, marine social science as its own discipline. So looking at, again, what that means are, are simply our human relationship 
with the sea. Um, and for the most part, looking at how to restore that one, because <laughs> it's quite a broken one, at least in our more Western modern societies. Yeah, and I, I think that's just been the common thread for me all along. And um, because of that intimacy I've always had with the sea by the nature of my birth and where I grew up and the fact I was born into a surfing family in Ireland, which is an unusual thing um, back then. <laughs> Yeah, so it's and and then the sea has always been that that space that's fueled my curiosity. So maybe that's what drew me into wanting to like dig into it way more um, through the science part of it too. And as surfers, we're just so immersed in in the ocean and witness to all these changes, and there's so much more going on. I don't know. Yeah, it just for me, it seemed natural <laughs> to want to know more. And and I'd imagine that you you went to school and you got degrees. What where did you go and what did you study? Yeah, it definitely wasn't a linear path at all. I mean, to put in a bit of context, where I grew up in Donegal, it's one of the most sort of regional, kind of peripheral parts of Ireland, very rural. Um, not a lot happening. And even at the time when I was learning to surf as a kid, I started surfing when I was four years old. Um, there wasn't any kids in my school who surfed. Like, it was still considered a total nutcase thing to do. Um, I mean, it is in Ireland, <laughs> probably still is, <laughs> but um, it's it's changing. Um, and but surfing to me then was this almost like this ticket to to get out, to go explore, travel. You know, if, um, just seeing all those surf travel stories. And then if I I thought if I competed, then I can go on you know, with the Irish surf team and travel and and go to other parts of the world. So that's that's kind of how my, my sort of little naive motivation as a kid started out. Yeah, it, um, it's funny, like because because how how cold does the water get there when you are surfing in Ireland? It probably gets to kind of six or eight degrees Celsius in in the middle of winter, um, which is pretty cold. But the problem in Ireland is more that we is the wind. We get so much wind with it too. So there's a there's a lot of wind chill. We don't wouldn't get like enough snow or ice very often, but it's pretty stormy. It's funny because I've got I've got uh, my twins, a boy and a girl, and they're seven, and um, I'm I'm trying very consciously not to be the surfing dad just because of where I work and where I have worked and my experience to be like, oh, they're going to surf, and everyone in your extended family is like, they're going to be the next Kelly Slater, and it's like you've seen enough horror stories to be like, no, I, I really don't want them to do it, but they kind of pick it up through osmosis and you get excited. Mm. But you know, I live in um, Ventura County, which is north of LA, and. I kind of balance it out where it's like it's not the most user friendly place to learn because it is colder and and it's a little bit more exposed and you don't kind of have these nice baby waves everywhere to, to get comfortable on. Um, but then I think about like having to learn in places like Ireland where I'm like, man, the, the barrier to entry must be so, so high because <laughs> it, the conditions are so raw. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, for me, in a way, I'm, I'm not sure. My story was almost, a lot of it was almost like laid out for me, um, at least the, as an optional script to follow in that, I, you know, my name Eski comes from the Irish for fish. It's the name of a surf break on the west coast of Ireland. So, and I have this kind of surfing lineage, which, which is unusual to have as at this generation in Ireland born into a family that surfs um, both my parents. And so then passing that on to me and, and my sister, um, but also even having my grandparents involved with the sort of the origins of the whole surf scene in Ireland. Um, <laughs> there was no getting away from it. Um, yeah. And you tell us a little bit about that, because I understand that you, your grandmother is, is uh, you know, 
intrinsic to surfing lore in Ireland. She is. She's, she's quite a remarkable woman, um, Mary Britton, and and, the, and my grandfather, Vinnie Britton. But they had a hotel here in Rosnila, right on the beach. Um, and they kinda, she kind of got that going, super enterprising woman in the 60s in Ireland. So, you know, Ireland at the time was probably one of the poorest countries in Europe. Uh, tourism just didn't exist. And yet she really pioneered tourism by traveling to to the States and promoting Ireland and, and those kind of American-Irish ties. And um, her travels brought her to Malibu um, sometime, I guess, in the late 60s. So, And she stayed at a hotel right at Malibu Beach and saw the surfing and the waves and, and connected the dots to the waves back home in front of her hotel. And it's, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe it was because she has, you know, she had such a sort of, innovative enterprising mind she managed to get her hands on some of the first surfboards to like enter into the country in ireland um and she's a mother of she's a mother of five boys my dad included so um you can imagine when these surfboards arrive <laughs> into the hotel um well they must have thought and of course there was no access to any any reference to what surfing was or how you're supposed to do it back then um and most of what my dad would have learned would be from traveling surfers you know in those early years but yeah, so they took them into the sea, no wetsuits or anything, just floating around on the waves, um, lying down initially until they saw a traveling surfer stand up um, from the UK. <laughs> and they realized, all oh, right, you can stand up in these things. And so my dad was 12 at the time. Um, and then yeah, both my grandparents, they also, um, they kind of initiated what's now the longest running surf event in Ireland, the Rasnala Surfing Intercounties. Um so it's been over 50 years. And it was, I guess, a way, what's really cool about that, it's an event that brings together people from all over the country, uh, north and south of the border, um, as a, you kind of would get together as a team. So it turned what is a very individualistic sport into a kind of team sport. So you sort of surf together, represent your county, and all these teams from all over the country would meet at the end of the season in, in October. And it was just a real social way to kind of create that community, surf community in Ireland. And it's amazing because it's just, it's um, it's remained and, and followed through all these years later. So I think about this a lot, whether it's just in terms of development and how it was, you know, as you outlined in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where, where regions and surfers had to develop, you know, their own approach to wave riding or their own uh, sort of board building techniques or fitness techniques or whatever. And, and their reference points for, for how to get better were, as you said, like traveling surfers that would come there that maybe you could, you could glean something off of. And how, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in modern society, the information age has really leveled all that out in, in a lot of ways and, and in a way kind of homogenized it. Um, and I think there's probably pluses and minuses to that. There's probably, you know, access to best practices in a lot of ways. But in a lot, a lot of other ways, there's sort of a loss of sort of individualistic or communal culture, um, which you're kind of outlining here. I, I do want to bring it back to your current work in academia quickly, and, and then we'll kind of move all over the place. But you know, your work in marine social science and, and given your unique background, is it a collaborative experience at, at university where you're working with other professors and other academics? And if so, I'd imagine y- you have a fairly diverse background compared to some of your, your colleagues. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to doing case studies, I'm like literally get immersed in the ocean. It's perfect. <laughs> um, so I, for the last, I suppose the last five years in particular, I've really specialized in what's going to become known as blue health. Mm. So a concept that now defines essentially the the um, 
sort of the mental and physical health benefits of being in, on or near the water um, and in particular the ocean. Um, so it's, I mean, it's just quite incredible. <laughs> I get to specialize in an area like that. And yeah, I work with a lot of, um, you can imagine, um, researchers and scientists from so many different disciplines as well. So from, you know, the marine scientists, but also social scientists looking at behavior change, medical backgrounds, so looking at that link between the health of the ocean and the health of humans, uh, both um, the benefits, but also then the the impacts, like what what's at risk when um, that environment isn't cared for. Um, and also just how much, yeah, how much we stand to benefit if we do look after it and restore it. And um, so I'm most interested in in kind of, unpacking what the uh what pull the sea has on us why are we drawn to it and how it affects us i suppose more emotionally and psychologically um so those restorative and in particular therapeutic benefits so it's being used as like a therapy um ocean therapy is a thing it's it's uh, brilliant i'd imagine some of your colleagues must view you as some sort of superhuman when it comes to if their background is sort of in, almost exclusively in academia and sort of uh, book learning and 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 classrooms and then when it comes to field study and you're putting your hand up to be like yeah i'll go out there and like i'll, I'll do the actual field work <laughs> yeah and i mean what i love about it too it's like i it, i think the especially the role of science in academia is that there's there's so much knowledge and understanding out there but what gets lost is the application of like how does that translate in into everyday reality how do you put it into action and that's where those kind of collaborations and community-based work is really important so i'm excited for a new project that's just kicking off um funded by the eu on on surf therapy called inclusi but it's looking at creating a framework i suppose or in to create greater accessibility um, for surfing for people with physical um, physical disabilities, I'm working. So I'm working directly with surf therapy charity Liquid Therapy here in Ireland, and then we partner with a bunch of other ones across all across Europe. Um, so that kind of research is is what really excites me when you get to actually work with people who are like, doing the work on the ground and supporting the work they do and helping to evidence the benefits. It feels like it's almost something of like an age old challenge with surfing because you know people like to say like, oh, it's it's indescribable, which there's an element of truth to that because the experience of it is so special and it sort of defies um, categorization in a lot of ways. So so people trying to synthesize it for for whatever purpose, you know, in, in academia or therapy or, you know, uh, you know commercialism or, or whatever it is, there's always a, a challenge there, right? Because people kind of gravitate towards how special it is and how transformative the actual experience is. But it, mm. it's because it is something that kind of, I don't know, bristles against constraint in a lot of ways, for lack of a better phrase. Have you had any challenges in your own work with that and trying to kind of like, okay, how do I articulate this particular component of it and, and its impact on human beings? And I'm just fascinated by, by that process. Yeah, <laughs> it's super challenging. I mean, you know, uh, I'm often, uh, for me, it's such a, my connection with the sea is so intimate and personal as well, as then there's the, that sort of, you know, the more sort of objective scientific role, which you can't actually be, be objective. Yeah, and how do you evidence something like that that's in such a, you know, ever-changing, unpredictable, constantly moving, fluid environment, and you're trying to draw on, you know, similar sort of, 
tests or surveys that have been carried out in you know randomized controlled trials in a laboratory with a like a pharmaceutical drug uh, <laughs> where you're trying to show the benefits for you know treating things like um PTSD, depression, anxiety, like the whole the whole spectrum. Um and and sort of you intuitively know and feel that there's these, this healing effect when you're in the water. Um, and then how do you communicate that in, into a world that's used to having things so structured and controlled? Um, so in part, I think it's really important we don't over-medicalize it, but also find, I think, these more creative ways of articulating, as you say, uh, what mm. it is about water, the ocean and surfing. And I think it's, it's different things to different people. Like I've worked with... Um, I think what I've loved about surfing is is the places it's taken me to are places I might never have otherwise ended up with or have found any kind of familiarity or connection. So the connecting force was surfing to establish a conversation or to, you know, I'm talking about places like going to, to Iran and the Middle East and mm. the whole connection with, with um, female surfers in particular there. Um, but it's... It's just a wonderful facilitator of connection, I find. And then it's also really opened my eyes to this the importance of understanding and celebrating the diversity of those experiences, of why people go surf in the first place and, then, and how it makes them feel. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that, too, because I feel like there are probably some parallels, whether you work in you know, media or you work in the industry, or you work in the sport or you work in academia, where you, you're working with surfing and one of the objectives, as we we're talking about it, is to, you know, effectively and authentically synthesize it in a way for, for broader consumption, in a, in a positive way, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. And what I've found, and I wonder if it's the same in academia, is that we probably all know people that are so, so in deep on, on core surfing that they, they have a hard time kind of bridging to a broader, maybe uninitiated group of people, like why it's special. And then mm -hmm. concurrently, you probably have people from outside of surfing that they're not open or receptive to some of those very, very special or authentic things in surfing where they're not bridging either. So, so I've always found that the, the best way to do it is to kind of have people inside of surfing that are willing to look outside of surfing and then vice versa, people outside of surfing that are willing to look inside of surfing to create a balance. Is, have you found it's the same in, in, in your academic work? Yeah, it's... It's an interesting thing. And I always wonder as well, am I, am I really just so in my own bubble here, <laughs> my <laughs> mega bias that <laughs> sure. how amazing surfing is? So I, I always have been questioning, okay, why water? And what, so what is it about water? Um, and there's just a whole interesting conversation to have there. But then also then what is it about the ocean? What is it about waves? And what is it about actually surfing itself? And we've carried out like a, a kind of a global review on all the studies that have been done on those kind of more therapeutic interventions. Um, so using things everything you know, from sailing to surfing and swimming and actually surf therapy is the one the ones that is coming up as the the most sort of used, the most studied. Um, it's really kind of exploding um, all around the world. So that's kind of really I'm really curious kind of as to why um, and for really diverse kind of groups. Um, but it does, I mean, the, the kind of fascinating, so a few things about, okay, why, why surfing? <laughs> I think in the work I've come across working, you know, with kids with autism to, you know, around women's leadership and confidence building and connecting with their bodies in places like Iran and Papua New Guinea to, you know, just, just such a diverse spectrum of people. A lot of it is to do 
I think in one part, there's something about the ocean itself when you go there and you're doing something like surfing, which is maybe inherently playful when you're first, especially when you're first learning that. Yeah. What am I trying to say here? There's a few things that come up again and again. One is that it's like this place where the freedom to be who you are. So this ability to leave your kind of land based persona behind you know, and just really um, the ocean is this place that's very, really accepting and without judgment. And that comes up a lot, uh, which is so interesting because then, you know, if you look at through like a media lens <laughs> that in surfing, that's a whole other story. But, the you know, the personal experience or encounter with with the sea and surfing, that's what comes up. And the other thing I think is also about the ocean and how it's this space that kind of holds us. And I've been definitely feeling that this year. And it's also why I, I'm not sure if it's just about surfing, but I think it's about any way that we can have that direct encounter with the ocean um, in a positive way. So even with sea swimming, for example, and how immersive that is, um, especially for the whole body. I mean, then the other thing then with surfing in particular is that it is such a challenging environment. And so I think that's really interesting to see outcomes with surf therapy programs with kids in particular because it instills a sense of independence and autonomy that's so lacking in a lot of kids upbringing nowadays you know how controlled their environments are how scheduled and timetable the activities are okay maybe you might schedule like the surf session or, or lesson or whatever but once they're in the ocean it's this freedom they have and that moment where they catch the wave and they're not you know they have to roll with it if they wipe out that's an experience that's wholly theirs um so that's actually really important and a lot of the kids will say that and as an outcome afterwards how meeting those kinds of fears and challenges really help them feel a sort of sense of I suppose confidence um but also change and transformation in themselves mm. um and and then of course a lot of it is, uh, surfing is also being used then in terms of rehabilitation for different disabilities especially spinal injuries and um, and things like that, where it's incredible for mobility um, balance. And and even most recently, there's still so much we don't know. You know, it's incredible how there's this recent study just come out in Australia with people who have cystic fibrosis. Mm. And it's shown that when actually when they when a certain group were coming back from surfing, they were having far less kind of flare ups. Um, right. And so scientists are wondering, why, like, why is this? Um, and it's to do, I think, because funnily enough with surfing, it's probably because you get tossed around and wipe out so much <laughs> and swallow so much seawater. So it was the seawater that they were ingesting and the salt water that was uh, really um, soothing their, their body and reducing these pulmonary or flare-ups in their lungs, um, which is then now obviously you can make that much more accessible if people don't have access to the sea by finding some way to do this saltwater therapy but yeah it's, it's so there's so much i think what fascinates me is that there's still so much we don't know you know about the yeah. ocean well and and it kind of speaks to why it's so important to protect it and you're part of the 30 by 30 campaign that our friends at pure are putting out and it's it's a campaign that is calling for protection of 30 percent of the ocean by 2030 can can you talk a little bit about what that campaign means to you and, and why you you want to be involved yeah, it's it's such an important campaign and I'm, I'm really grateful to be involved with some actually incredible kind of ocean ambassadors from around the world um, and some some dear friends of mine. Well, what I really like about it, because I think it, it, within science and in, in the 
in the work they do often a huge failing is this is the communication element so the the power and the power in the storytelling and so what is so important about this campaign is that it sort of talks about and explores our human relationship with the ocean in this really personal way through all these diverse lenses of why the ocean matters um personally for each person and it gives a kind of new insight into that um, human experience of the ocean and how it touches our lives in so many different ways and maybe unexpected ways um, so that's why I was really really excited and there's the sad reality of the fact that how we've we've utterly failed to protect um, the ocean until <laughs> until this point um, which is kind of crazy um, when you when you think about it so the yeah the fact that I think it's maybe only 3% of the ocean is, isn't it fully protected? Um, so they hit the target, yeah, of 30% by 2030. Um, I mean, it's in one way seems ambitious, but in another way, it's like, really, we have to petition and <laughs> campaign for this. Why is it's it it's only 30%. Like, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. And I think, as you said, like everything we know about the ocean so far is, is so impressive and impactful in terms of application. And as you, you rightly pointed out, we still don't know so much, you know, about the ocean. And it seems like such a um, such a failure to not protect it before you find out, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's it holds like most of the world's like biodiversity, and there's so many species that we we don't even know that exist and. But, you know, we might not ever real discover that because they could be gone by the time we, we realize. Um, and just the fact that, I mean, the other connection that we have with the ocean, I'm talking about, I suppose, in their sort of this more experiential realm of using it as a, you know, as a form of therapy, if we can, if we have access to that. But even if you don't, if you've never been in the ocean, it's this, the evolutionary connection to the ocean is remarkable and it stays, you know, if you're looking at biomedicine, it stays in these sort of biomarkers in our body. And it's why so many of our medicines are derived from ocean species. Um, and in particular, especially right now <laughs> in a pandemic and with more and more viruses on the scene, the solution, I think, to a lot of them can be, can be found through, um, through the ocean as well. Totally. So, so to cut ourselves off from the thing that's, you know, the life force that's healing at us <laughs> seems mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, hopefully uh, we get to reverse that as soon as possible. I do want to get to a, a few more meaty topics, and we definitely have some listener questions for you. But first, mm. we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. So I want to track back a little bit and, and talk about uh, your interest in a professional surfing career. Um, coming from Ireland, and you said something that really struck me, which was you viewed competitive surfing or, or an interpretation of a professional surfing career with the Irish national surf team and, and whatever that led to as a window to a bigger world, which I've talked about a bit before on this podcast, not from a competitive standpoint, but I you know, coming from Southern California and sort of the Orange County bubble, that was really the primary driver, which, which had me gravitate towards surfing. I went, oh, wow, this is, this is actually like a window to a bigger world where I can learn about different people and different cultures. And yeah, the surfing part's great, but it's like, it was more kind of horizon expanding. Did, did you feel the same about the opportunity to, to be a professional surfer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that was a huge driver for me. To the point where, yeah, I, I mean, I, I learned a lot through competitive surfing, <laughs> definitely. And it provides a really good container, especially in those, you know, teenage years. Um, I competed all the way, kind of from when I was from when I was a kid, about eight years old, through to, I am in a mid to late 20s, so it was a few years ago. Um, yeah, what, what did it represent for me? It's interesting because my, my upbringing, I, my dad's a surfer and I still surf with him all the time. Um, but he's a real kind of surfing for him is his spiritual practice. And he doesn't just, he doesn't see any place for that competitive element at all. He isn't interested in the commercialization of it. And, um, so he is that, you know, the, real embodiment of the, you know, quote unquote soul surfer, if you're to put a label on it, I suppose. So it was an interesting dynamic and I was a real like super driven <laughs> competition <laughs> head on me when I was a kid, you know. Um, That's not unlike but, like Tom Curran and his father, Pat, you know, so talking to Tom, like his dad was not into the competitive side at all, but it, that in a way drove Tom to, to kind of be like, well, I'm going to make this work. Yeah, that well, that's super interesting because I met actually Pat and Tom and they came to Ireland um, in Bundoran uh, back when I was a grommet um, as well. So that was, yeah, it was interesting. It was just really cool for me as a kid to see this other dynamic of like a, you know, father-son one as opposed to father-daughter. But yeah. <laughs> well, um, and, and, and I guess too, like, so we're probably, you uh, date me on this, but your your competitive trajectory was what sort of early oddies like 2010s timeline um and I, i'm wondering if there was like a specific goal in mind when you were doing it when you were traveling for the irish national surf team i'd imagine you did some qs events was it yeah i'm gonna i'm just gonna progress i'm gonna I'm, like 
battle my way up the rankings. I'm going to qualify for the championship tour. I'm going to win a world title. Was it that specific for you at any point? Oh, um, <laughs> I think I, I probably realized fairly early on that that was going to be, uh, yeah, I, that I was going to be a bit soul crushing for me to try to go all in with the competitive side. I mean, several reasons. One, it's just so isolating. You're in Ireland. You're not really part of a crew, um, you know, again, on the edge of Europe, but even in terms of the surf scene. So it's very difficult to do that amount of travel alone. And then the resources were just non-existent. Thank goodness it's starting to change, especially for women surfing. But it was pretty, pretty desperate then. Um, so funding wise, really difficult. And then the other thing I quickly learned, I just didn't connect with being I find it really challenging I, I felt like I was caught in this kind of bubble um and I go to these amazing places um for for a surf event or championship and and then but we just kind of go from beach to beach to beach and I felt like there, there was no real connection with the place and the people and that's what was really pulling me um and then also I did wonder at this sense of you we kind of we also came in as a self-contained almost unit and then left again and right. I just wondered about that you know impact um sort of an so, imperial approach to to traveling in a lot of ways you know like you come in you're invading force and but I, I think what, yeah. what you're hitting on too is a, a big thing that I've struggled with in terms of just being present you know and I think it's mm -hmm. a little bit yeah. modern society it's a little bit the institutions we're working in but you know for example I, I mean I've this is my 16th year at the company and I've, I've traveled a lot for the company I've never actually stayed in Paris you know like ever I've never done a day you know I've gone to the airport and I've gone on you know and it's kind of I tell people that because they think you're well-traveled and it's like really not engaging with the community or the place or the culture or any kind of value. Like, like, you know, it's sort of being a part of the human species in a lot of ways. We're just kind of like coming in, we're, we're thinking about the waves and then we leave and we go to the next beach. Yeah. And it's, it's for me, it was on this kind of, there were, you know, these series of kind of little revelations along the way. And, but the challenge initially was that, that I didn't have any blueprint to work off it, to be like a free traveling free surfer. So to do mm. the whole, um, I'm trying to think of someone at that time who, you know, there was, there's so many male examples. If you could go and explore you know, the whole surf exploration kind of genre and, and do travel, get the shots, write the story and get it in the mag. And there just wasn't really that space for women. And so I didn't, have many have much reference material in terms of, of role models but then I quickly realized actually maybe that is the best way to combine my skills because I've always loved writing um, and luckily the timing just worked in the UK there was a launch of a, a magazine Surf Girl which are, are still going who were supportive and would run my story so I began to sort of carve out that kind of niche as a kind of surf travel writer and then I realized I'm getting you know way more <laughs> fun out of doing that um and interestingly then that is actually what led me into something like the, the marine science um because I was spending more time in the places I was in so I was seeing uh, what was happening for example with on the coral reefs or the changes over time and then starting to understand people's experiences of the sea um, in different cultures. Um, so it really helped feed all of that. And then my relationship shifted again with surfing and it was much more about, oh, let, you know, a lens to really understand, create greater understanding between people. Well, and there was, oh, I'm curious about the layer in between the, and I'm sure it overlapped where, 
you're traveling for the Irish national surf team, you're doing QS events, you have this sort of this con- this competitive framework that you're experiencing life as a professional surfer through. And then in between then and now, there was also this, for you, uh, very, very successful gravitation towards big wave surfing. And, and I'm wondering when that took root for you uh, in sort of your arc. Yeah, and it's so interesting looking back in retrospect at these moments in time. Um, yeah, the, the, with big wave surfing, it was this really powerful alignment at that time in my life. It, I would say it was all around, I suppose, like 2010. 2007 was the first time it was sort of the catalyst when the you know Chris Malloy, Keith might have been over as well. I'd met them over the years to and from from Ireland, so they were kind of kind of good mentors already. But they had come over to shoot um, Wave Riders with local guy Richie Fitzgerald and Gabe Davies. So this documentary film, uh, Wave Riders, and it was also when the Cliffs of Moher Aliens was sort of first written. It was that kind of year, um, and I just had a. I had a session with them there during during the shoot where I went to watch and then ended up getting a wave and then just had this mind-blowing experience as you can imagine <laughs> at a place like that having never tried anything like that and then but it was you know a good few years trying to put it put it together get a jet ski find a tow partner all that jazz um but in Ireland too it was kind of just beginning um sure. so we were you know, there was a very kind of loose, tight knit crew who were trying to figure all of this out. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was a really fun time. <laughs> but I don't know if you call Moloch more fun, but that's the wave that's in my <laughs> in my backyard. So that was a good proving ground. Um, but 2010 I was, I was, was also... Sorry, oh, go on, sorry. Go on, no, 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 please. I, I was just going to say, I was going to ask you to pronounce Mullock more for me because I have butchered it on this <laughs> podcast before. Well, we shortened it to, to Mully a lot, but yeah, <laughs> Mullock more. <laughs> Um, yeah, but the, in terms of the alignment, interestingly, as I was really drawn to big wave surfing was also when I had just started PhD. So, which was in Northern Ireland, but having in a way, something like that was really grounding because it meant I was just here all the time and and Mm. here for the whole winter rather than traveling, which is what you need to be just ready and waiting when there's, when there's waves and doing a PhD, it's a much more kind of flexible form of study if you're disciplined enough to get the work done but I I feel like it seems nuts looking back now that I went to those extremes so I but I feel like maybe I needed the intensity like that kind of balance of the you know the sort of intensity of the mind stuff the head stuff right I needed to feel that as intensely and in my body by doing big wave surfing perhaps (laughs) you know I I, the the sort of Unfortunately, the sort of systemic, you know, racism and misogyny within the surfing institutional world is something that that we're all still having to combat and wrestle and rectify. And I think a lot of that lends itself to to parts of surfing feeling almost impenetrable from from people that are not like white males, to be frank. And I'd imagine that that big wave surfing, specifically at the time that you took it up was was really feeling impenetrable for a lot of women around the world. Do you think that because you grew up in Ireland and there was a little bit of an outsider element to your upbringing, that that, that actually helped you here where you didn't have as many sort of um, issues with that because you're, oh, well, I'm, I'm here and I know that I can do these things and my experience has told me I can do these things? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I like, yeah, I think there's a few things. There's a fact that I, I had that kind of mentorship um, from from my father 
my uncle Willie, who who surfed, but they would have you know pioneered a lot of bigger waves in their day too. Um, and then you know my tow partner is my cousin Neil, and so there I felt like that there was that kind of protective buffer from family, anyways, that was very encouraging and motivating. And so I never felt like I didn't belong because of that. But then on the other side, yeah, there, in terms of, of women in that space, weren't very weren't very many that were visible but actually I had a you know when I first started surfing and I had a subscription to Wahin magazine uh, at the time uh, which unfortunately it had to fold but I always remember an issue in centerfold is Sarah Gerhardt taking off in Mavericks a, a huge um, drop at, at a Mavs and it was the first time I'd seen a wave that big with a woman on it and in a wetsuit in cold water. So that was, that immediately got pinned on my wall long before I ever had any intention of going near big waves, but it just definitely seeded something in me. And that remains very powerful for me now. Um, I since got to meet Sarah and, and everything since, which has been amazing. But my point being, it's just remarkable the impact of an image and that impact that can have on a girl and then what she believes is possible. So it's so important to have that kind of storytelling. Totally. Um, big wave icon, Ross Clark Jones once said that when <laughs> dealing with dangerous wipeouts and being held under by big waves, he begins to imagine he's in a nightclub. He said, uh, you know, it's about distracting and diluting yourself from the reality because the reality is kind of a worry. I, I personally don't consider nightclubs to be a safe space for me, but d does this, Im does this actually I guess big wave surfing and dealing with sort of the dangers of it, does that, has that influenced your thinking with sort of the blue mind that you've, you've talked mm. about before? And, and could you elaborate on a few techniques of staying in the blue mind sort of, of state of mind uh, when you're confronted with, with big wave hold downs? Yeah. So I love the blue mind concept and then the work that's been evolving around it since, you know, thanks to Wallace J Nichols and his, his book, um, but yeah, for me, I realized that's what I was cultivating before I, I got I got a hold of the book. And I definitely, I really struggled with the, I suppose, the mental side of it, of like not over, you know, not psyching myself out too much. And then, yeah, I felt it really difficult. And when I first started to not carry a whole baggage load of expectations with me out into the water, um, especially because there's so many of those narratives of, you know, of needing to prove yourself in a different way because you're, you're a woman, right? So I felt like I was almost harder on myself as a result. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of this is what I, what I realized I, yeah, I was dragging along with me that I didn't need to. <laughs> or the other thing is like the way it gets portrayed is that you have to show up and be like, you know, really like tough and, <laughs> um, you know, show that you're psyched and have that bravado when in actual fact, I realize it's just really important to show up with all of who you are and to feel all that you're feeling. Because for me, what it became was this really powerful place of encounter, like permission mm. to allow all of those emotions um, and to really get to know myself in, in a really different way in those extreme environments. But in order to get to that place, um, that kind of I suppose, self-awareness in a way was through mindfulness and mindfulness-based practice. So really then training the mind and creating this kind of blue mind effect, which is, I mean, how do you switch on that state of presence and calm when you're in a really confronting high stress 
scenario when you should be in red mind, you know, when you need that, when you need, need a certain amount of it, right? The red mind right, being the, the uh, you know, the adrenaline, the, the energy that's going to get you out of the danger zone, right? So it, you, it was interesting in big wave surfing, there's this kind of constant sort of dance between these two um, states of mind. But going back, yeah, to the Ross Clark Jones one, mine would not be a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm actually worked a lot yeah with with different visualizations and they're so powerful and important um I kind of do the funnily enough I trained in you know, mindfulness-based practice and I used to always struggle with the body scan mm. so you kind of you know, start at your your left big toe and then you go all the way through your entire body and I just get really bored and distracted trying to do it and lose focus when on land but I find it really good in the water because it's just it just takes yeah, it just it's a great way to connect with your body and then it takes enough time that you're not yeah, I find that's that's my approach <laughs> to stay with my body. It it's so interesting because it, it does seem like and I'll 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 clump you into this group too, like the very, very small group of high level surfers that seem relatively well adjusted, almost it almost a hundred percent has to do with the the mindfulness work that they have to do. And and I think about this a lot in the sense of you know, there's no shortage of, of diagnosed and undiagnosed um, cases of, of sort of bipolar manic depression with, with sort of extreme action sports athletes and, and certainly in surfing. And surfing, when you think about it, is is sort of a, a high-low kind of activity. You're either, you know, up riding mm-hmm. a wave and you've got all this adrenaline and you're excited or you're just kind of sitting there, you know, or you're out, you're actually getting to surf or you're kind of in your sort of civilian life and going through your day or you're on a surf trip or it's not, it's very kind of stilted Mm. in terms of stop, start and high, low. And have you ever thought about that? I guess is the question, but also the the follow-up is that, you know, do you think that the mindfulness work and the the mind-based training is something that's helped you navigate that in, in in as healthy a way as possible? Oh yeah, it's because it's like the dark side, isn't it? <laughs> sure. Surfing, but it is. It's but yeah, you you described it so well, and that's that's really true. Um, and definitely growing up in a household where you know my dad is surf obsessed, we're both surf addicts in that sense. But really, you know, the highs and lows he would go through if you have like a dry spell with no waves for a while, or <laughs> um, and that's always the hard one, isn't it? Too, especially when you have those real peak moments, those peak experiences that you get the high high, say in big waves surfing and how do you how do you come ashore I always find that really interesting how do you how do you integrate that that world into your it's civilian life as you put it yeah I think what actually really helped me so yeah when the doing a lot of more mindfulness-based work but a really interesting body of work I've been exploring the last few years and I wish I'd known as a, especially as a young female competitive surfer is around this work around it, which I've spoken about quite a bit around cycles so this more cyclical approach to how we live how we work uh, that taps into our sort of natural biorhythms and how to track them um, and work with the sort of the natural energy flows that we have which which ebb and flow they're not they're not always firing you know not always firing in all cylinders and actually recognizing that that that's that's normal that's healthy um whereas you know often as a an athlete too you're conditioned to and it's the same in academia actually like that these sort of everything is to do with performance indicators and being productive and so if you're you know, if if you're in that ebb state or need to sort of rest or want to reflect or be still, then it's not valued as much. Um, 
So that that understanding for me has really been so helpful. And I think it's especially helpful for women because it's inbuilt, you know, we have our own sort of cyclical force with the menstrual cycle. Mm. Um, and of course, then, you know, all humans have it because we've evolved with nature. Um, but I think that's a huge untapped area and it excites me because I'm starting to see it become more mainstream mm -hmm. and starting to even be used in professional sports, uh, like the menstrual cycle tracking in, in women's pro soccer. And it kind of stuns me, though, that it hasn't like we haven't caught on in surfing. Like we're so, you know, kind of naturally attuned to cycles of tides and moons and seasons <laughs> already and scheduling our lives around it um that would be a really a uh, wonderful extra layer because it's such a great um way to just especially from a health perspective to and for women to create a more positive body relationship especially i love what you're saying just about the cycles thing too because i think that ties into the addictive nature of of surfing and you know we talk about it a lot where it's sort of this, it's more than a sport, it's more than a lifestyle. And this passion that comes from surfers is really speaking to like an identity uh, for them in a lot of ways. And and even just speaking for myself recently, like I, I was never a very, very good surfer. I think I'm a better surfer today than I was, but I'm battling sort of, I'm 37, you know, like age and physical weapons that I may have had that I didn't, I didn't ever had many physical weapons, but it's one of those things where I've interpreted it as, okay, I need to surf every day not just to get better, but to kind of maintain like a, a sort of a bizarre obsession with, with, you know, ripping or whatever it is, shortboard surfing. Right. And we've had a pretty good run of waves here on the West coast, um, recently, but in the last couple of weeks, the, the winds have been really bad where I live and all the banks are gutted. And I have uh, been taking to, uh, walking the trails behind my house in the Hills every morning. Um, just to get outside and to kind of clear my head. And I was talking to someone about this the other day and I, I said, you know, I still love surfing, but Jesus, the amount of energy I spend obsessing over like, where is the bank? What is the swell doing? What is the tide doing? What is the wind doing? How do I, what board do I ride? Like, how do I, how do I <laughs> tick that box every day compared to I turn up to the trail at 6 a.m. every day and it's still there. Like, and that's not to say like, I'm going to give it up surfing, mm -hmm. but it's, it's really, really been an experience for me, just speaking very candidly and recently of, I can still feel good about myself physically and get outside without having to tap this addiction every day. And I, in a lot of cases, I probably end up surfing better when I do because I'm not kind of burnt out or, or exhausted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. It's myself and my partner that started this year decided we'd do this kind of just for the hell of it, um, a cold water immersion challenge. So that like, every day, if, if we weren't surfing, then we had to go for a sea swim. Um, no wetsuit, just like a sea dip, let's be honest. I'm not really <laughs> swimming around in that temperature of water for too long. Um, and it was super, it was actually almost painful for the first few days or week. And uh, we had our coldest spell here. But actually, after a while, it changed. And there was something in a way that changed for, it's a very different perspective on the ocean too is you're trying to find a spot usually that doesn't have waves and but also doesn't depend on what the waves are doing and it's like maybe you're just figuring out maybe the tides what state the tide is and but it was just something so freeing about you just stripping down jumping in and after a few minutes feeling that transformation and and whole shift in the nervous system and it was like hmm <laughs> didn't have to worry about the boards or the wetsuit or the surf work <laughs> 
uh, it's not a replacement, but it's interesting to, I think it's important to shift up our perspective every now and again, especially as surfers. We're very, uh, yeah. I, I totally agree. The center I think, of the universe. Yeah. And the value of disruption, I think, is something that, that's really, really important. We, we've touched on it a little bit so far in this conversation, but, you know, there, there's, in my opinion, there's a, we both kind of are, have experienced how special surfing is and, and how powerful it is and how it can be applied, even though we don't fully understand it or the ocean to, to certain aspects of, of human life. And then there are institutions that have been built on top of surfing, whether it's the surf industry or the surf media or even the sport itself, that have attempted to synthesize what makes it special for whatever agenda it has, right? Um, commercial agenda, et cetera. And I think it's often imperfect, but but it is just it, it's just something that's interesting, right? Because people continue to go back to the well because they appreciate, hey, this is a very, very powerful thing. There are positive outcomes to it, but we're not always, how am I put this? We're not always expressing it in the best way. Um, and I wonder if you've thought of that just through your experiences as a professional surfer and, and now and now working in academia. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's huge opportunity there, um, which excites me. But then I've also been wondering, like, why is it that I feel like maybe surfing as an industry hasn't really embodied those more, I suppose, the eco qualities, the ecological kind of inherent qualities that come with surfing and be having that kind of such an intimate connection with a really powerful part of, of a yeah, that living force of, of, of the earth, right. That we don't really get very often in our everyday lives as humans, you know? Um, and so it seems like, you know, sir, as surfers, we're really primed to be these stewards and custodians and to have this innate connection and to be environmental activists. And there are a lot of examples of that, but I also wondered is inherent in surf culture is this notion of kind of escapism. So we mm. want to just get away and not deal with any of the problems or issues. Sure, sometimes. of course, yeah. So there's that that kind of element. But I think a bigger issue is that is the fact that often surfing has been sold as this kind of as a space for escapism, freedom of, you know, that kind of the perfect wave narrative to that constant search. But it does exclude the whole issue around um I suppose power, you know, how there are real huge exclusionary forces at play, especially around the coastal space and access to the coast and the sea and surfing. Um, and that's that's kind of then fed these inequalities and, and why there's been such a lack of, of diversity and inclusion in something like like surfing and, surf, and the surf industry until, mm -hmm. until more recently. Um, so it's good to see that slowly shifting. Um, you know, I, I wonder if it's like we talked about the information age earlier. I wonder if, you know, for all the challenges that it's brought upon society, if that is actually one of the benefits in that there's not really anywhere to hide, you know. And, and I think kind of the idea of surfing, is, as you so eloquently put it, of of being connected to the power of the planet and, and potentially being, you know, champions for ecological health, um, all these sort of special things that maybe these institutions liked to, and, and not even maliciously, but fronted or marketed themselves as being really truly have to acknowledge that they're not living it or they're not authentically um, honoring it uh, in the information age, right? Because again, there's nowhere to hide. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's that, that mm. 
you know, and I, and I wonder if that's sort of, you know, a silver lining to all this where it does feel painful. It does, there's been a ton of introspection, I, I'd even say sort of in the last 12 months about inclusion and diversity and, 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 and some of the challenges that institutions have, have sort of had to wrestle with in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know. I th- I th- I've been thinking about that a lot uh, recently. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, the shifts at play. I wonder what I wanted to say in response to that. It's, and it's funny too, because it's like, there's a, there's a few things going on. It's also like, in a way, it feels like surfing has almost been slow to change when, and yet surfing as a metaphor is all about, you know, it, it, I use it in, a, I run a leadership retreat called the Wavemaker Collective with two colleagues of mine, Lindsay Hawk and, and Carolina Pereira. We, well, we usually do it every year in Portugal. <laughs> on hold uh, but the, we kind of draw on the principles of what we've learned from what we value from surfing in the sea and to create this kind of a way to sort of um this kind of learning environment so learning through nature and, and being immersed in the ocean but i mean surfing is just a classic for it of of, of risk taking of meeting mm. fear of um yeah so it's just ripe for fueling innovation um and taking these kind of risks especially around in terms of like design and and yet it's almost like I feel like surfing as an industry, especially when it comes to the products we use, is it is trying to play almost catch up. Um because we well, Right. You know, and it, it's funny, right? because like I would I'm I just real quick, like Tyler Wright and I were talking exactly about this, and I didn't want to forget the point, which was, you know, as you put it, like the the ocean, you could argue, is the most alien frontier for the human species in a lot of ways, like on on the planet. And you know, where the ocean meets the land is kind of the most violent part of this alien frontier. So the act of surfing in and of itself is sort of insane. And it attracts <laughs> a certain set of insane people, which I think is where, you know, the idea of like surfers are progressive nonconformists because they are this group of people. But as you pointed out, it's it's when when progressive nonconformity gets kind of institutionalized through capitalism, the result is sort of this behind the times conservatism that that permeates the the system in a lot of ways yeah it's it's sort of a it's a funny one isn't it and it's like um, but again i think that's changing in a way because there's this um in a way the technology and the information age and this thing of traceability and the circular economy and wanting to understand like the full journey of of what we use and how we use it and and I think there is huge potential as well through how, you know, there's, I feel like a greater connection being made with the stories of who the pro surfers are on tour now um, through different media platforms that WSL are creating. And it's a great opportunity then. They have, you know, such, I suppose, power and influence and reach um, to talk on on issues like this more and the impact that would have if, if we can get those more, you know, sustainable materials and mm. start to like make mainstream it but that needs we need to create more incentives for that really as well and, and i'll have a lot more honest conversations about should we really just be using this just because of certain performance aspects you know of course and, and it's funny right because we talked about those three elements of the institutions and in surfing and i'm sure there's elements again sort of waving the progressive nonconformist, you know and in some cases anarchist flag of like burn the whole thing to the ground but the, the true purposes behind these institutions are actually really, really cool when they're, when they understand what they are, you know, like the surf media has the opportunity mm. to, as we talked about, like create windows into a broader world for people that they otherwise wouldn't 
not be exposed to, you know, um, the sport in and of itself. And I'm, I'm no apologist, but like, you know, you get these sort of Gladwellian second conversations of, of social advancement with, you know, the rise of the Brazilian storm without the sport, there's no platform for them to do that. And it's, I think, you know, it, the teething is interesting, but, but it ultimately is a net positive for people to be exposed to that. And even the industry, you know, you, you develop the, the, I'm going to screw the name up, the, the Finisterre sea suit. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Perfect. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was confident about sea suit. I was, I wasn't confident about Finisterre, but, but it, you know, this is an example of the industry developing a, a functional garment that can be worn by, by Muslim women in the water. And, and that's very, very cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Finister, great example, or a surf company in, in Cornwall in the UK of really, they're the first sort of uh, surf company to become a B Corp here in Europe, I believe. Um, so they're, yeah, their whole model is is very much about that transparency, the story of the product, as well as the people who use them. And the CSU kind of came about just from a, through direct experiences of, of lived realities and needs of women in different parts of the world that just weren't being met. And, and for some alternative to like a body covering that wasn't bikini and board shorts or a wetsuit, you know? Um, and so it's it's just exciting to have those kinds of yeah, creative design challenges and then companies want to put to actually put their weight and expertise into it. And there's such, it's a great space for innovation now around textiles and materials. So it's it's ripe for collaboration, I think, with surfing and, and industry and science, um, but also the need to better understand what those lived experiences and needs are in the first place, um, you know, especially for, for women and girls and other minority groups and not to assume them. Um, mm-hmm. So to hear their voices more and have platforms for that. Um, so that's why I think there's a huge opportunity. There's like, there's so many surfers in the world now. And because of COVID, there seems like a lot more <laughs> going into the sea, you know, with showing a real interest. And I also feel like it kind of, up until now, maybe a missed opportunity has been, you know, how much as surfers are we ocean literate? You know, we, mm-hmm. we understand what we need to in terms of tides and swell forecasting, but how much do we actually know about our, our local ecosystem um, of the spots that we surf and the species that we share it with? And so I think finding a way to integrate greater ocean literacy and understanding of the ocean through learning something like surfing would be amazing. Um and I totally doable. And then you just all of a sudden have this huge kind of mass of, of uh, ocean minded citizens, uh, surfers um, who who are all yeah, literate in the ocean. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I think you're right. Like, I, I do think as painful as it's been, you know, the, the, the journey we've been on and continue to be on is sort of transforming these institutions, not a hundred percent, it's not gonna be a hundred percent right, but in a way that will be more effective and authentic to, to expressing, you know, surfing. And, and, and I say this all the time, you know, we're in a unique position working in surfing because the right thing to do is also the right business thing to do in a lot of ways. And maybe that's a function of the information age, but it's like, that's kind of the point. Like if you do the right thing, that's actually the right thing for your business. And that's how you're going to survive. Manduka was founded in 1997 with the simple idea that a better yoga mat could make a world of difference. For generations, Manduka has revolutionized the yoga space by providing purposely crafted products that enable a more joyful practice, whatever that looks like for you. 
The collaboration between Manduka and Jerry Lopez honors Jerry's profound dedication to both surfing and yoga disciplines. The limited edition collection showcases Jerry's signature camouflage print inspired by his surfboards. It fuses his iconic surf style with Manduka's commitment to quality and sustainability, offering everyone a unique expression of their practice. We all know that having the right gear is essential and a yoga mat is no different. Feel the benefits of yoga with Manduka's soulfully engineered, eco-friendly products designed to inspire your practice wherever you go. The Manduka and Jerry Lopez collection want to inspire you to practice yoga however you choose to. And from now until June 10th, you will get 15% off of all products when you visit manduka.com with the code THELINEUP15. That's manduka.com, code THELINEUP1515. We have a new segment for the podcast because it's a new year. Uh, these are the uh, top five power rankings. And for you, Iski, we've asked you the top five ways that the ocean can benefit your health, either physical or mental. I'm sure we've touched on a few, but why don't you take us through <laughs> your, your rankings? Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure how to rank these in order, but I think, well, I suppose number one has to be the fact that the ocean is the life support system. Um, it can't get really any bigger than that. So, it, you know, from regulating our climate to acting as a carbon sink to providing our oxygen supply, um, food, energy, medicine. Uh, yeah. So the ocean is our life support system. And then second, it's that the, the ocean or this kind of I suppose, concept of blue space uh, is extremely restorative uh, and actually significantly more restorative even than than other types of more land-based environments. So there is definitely something about water. <laughs> well, and it's funny because you touched on that before with cystic fibrosis and all the studies that are happening. But even anecdotally, I can say for myself, but I hear it all the time when someone's like, oh, my back hurts or my knee hurts or whatever. And then they go out there and they surf and they look unbelievable, not myself, but, but I feel much better. I don't feel like I'm hurt when I'm surfing, which is bizarre. Um, but I do think that's an element of it where it is the environment that for whatever reason, physical or psychological, there is a healing element to it. Absolutely. I mean, we could go into the like sub rankings here, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, so maybe another reason why it's so restorative is that, yeah, one one way it's so multisensory, you know, which is really important right now when we're depending very much on, you know, the visual or the audio or you know, through screen time um, and being indoors a lot more because of COVID. That's being then immersed in such a multisensory environment really brings us, you know, takes us out of our head and like fully into our bodies. So there's that really powerful space for self-connection. So, so number th num number three is multisensory. Multisensory. Okay, well, like that's that great. We got three. <laughs> um, four has to be for me. It's it's the benefit of cold water, um, which you know you you think yeah right okay. <laughs> I can see your skepticism already. You can feel it from here. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm I am a hundred percent with you. I'm a, I'm a polar bear swim advocate, even though I uh, I don't do it. <laughs> 
but yeah, it's extremely, again, extremely benefit, beneficial for your health on, on so many levels. Um, but just the most recent study to come out um, uh, in the UK, uh, they're still working on it, but they're just discovering that they, when you're immersed in cold water, um, so you know, get it from, from surfing or from swimming, um, it creates, releases this protein in the brain that's associated with reducing the risk of dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's, it's great sort of preventative measure for a lot of those um, mental illnesses that are kind of growing in the world as well. I'd imagine um, that, like, you know, the sort of the, it's not trend, but sort of the, you seeing it, I guess, sort mm-hmm. of a more, uh, more prevalent, sort of the ice bath component of people using it to probably do the same thing or reset their immune system. I've thought about that on very cold days where there must be an element of that. It might not be as extreme as sort of an ice bath submerge, but like, you know, you're going out there and it's cold and your body is responding to this environment in a way that's, that's a version of a reset. Yeah, and if if you unfortunately don't have access to cold water, um, <laughs> the the cold water shower is is also amazing. I I didn't believe it, and it feels so terrible when you first do it. But trust me, it's it's incredible. Um, it just it's it's like a you know full body workout. It's amazing for your metabolism. You're trying your body's trying to reach that homeostasis again um, <laughs> after being shocked with the cold. <laughs> the, but I will say, I mean, the, there yeah. is also cold water shock. So definitely go gently with yourself. Right. Um, take time and breathe deep and yeah, don't just the, dive the, straight in there. <laughs> the, uh, the poor Hawaiians are really behind the eight ball on this one. So they're going to have to do the ice bath and the cold water shower. <laughs> I, I think they probably have one up on us having figured all this out back in 400 uh, AD. And we could probably <laughs> learn a thing or two. I think so. Um, they don't, they don't need the ice bath. <laughs> You know, which I think is really important actually to acknowledge and we do, especially, I mean, science is as guilty as well um, as anything else. But the, you know, we talk about now use terms like blue space and blue health and blue mind. But if and it feels like this is sort of this new emerging discipline Mm. in science. But of course, we're building on sort of very, you know, ancient indigenous wisdom traditions for the most part, knowledge, whole bodies of knowledge that's already been there for millennia about the value and impact of water for our health. And we're just trying to, you know, in in Western society, modern science is just catching up, basically. Yeah, it is one of the great tragedies when, knowledge and information and earned experience is, is being quote unquote rediscovered without the prior knowledge just because cultures and communications and prejudice and bias are not, are not translating that information across time in a lot of ways. But yeah, I think that's, that's so important to acknowledge because the more we acknowledge it, the more we're going to be eyes open to it. And, and that's kind of it, right? Where it's like, let's not, you know, let's not have history repeat itself. Let's learn and, and kind of get better as a species. Absolutely. And, and on that, I think I have to go with the number five is just how, um, I mean, where where would arts and poetry and literature and all of our creativity be without the ocean? It just inspires awe and wonder as much as it does also fear, like it's this place of paradox. But um, it's just this place that really encourages insight, ignites creativity. Um, it Yeah, it's... It, it's one of, yeah, it's so important, I think, to to have those experiences in our lives and to really value experiences of actual awe and wonder that make us feel, I suppose, more humble <laughs> <laughs> as well as feeling more a part of it all as well. I, I, I definitely, that's my experience of it. 
that's really important. And that element of mystery, you know, there's still so much unknown. Um, but just because we don't know it all um, doesn't mean we shouldn't, uh, we should value it even more, I think, because of its mystery. I love it. That's a great top five. We, we did this for the first time last week with Randy Rarick. And, and I said, I don't know who's going to be able to match the bar. I think you matched and surpassed. But I'll, I'll maintain my theory that the next person's probably screwed on this segment. So those, those were fantastic. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, that's so cool. He had Randy on. He, he, that's how I first ended up in Hawaii was thanks to Randy Rarick. Yeah. He's a good he, dude. Yeah. He discovered my dad's artwork and asked, invited him to do the, the poster for the, the Pipe Masters one year. And dad doesn't like crowds or warm water. So mom and I had to go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What, what a bonus. All right. So we've, we've got two more segments. The first one we've got, uh, the penultimate segment, are questions from the Instagram community. We put it out there on our platform at the lineup cool. pod and uh, had dozens come in, but we, we narrowed it down to three. So the first question is from Odie Oddwire, um, who's a regular commenter uh, for us. It's great. Question is, when will we see another Irishman or woman on the championship tour? I guess he's he's laying claim to Glenn Hall as as an Irishman on tour. I to say, oh, I mean, it's a good question, but in part of me wonders, you know, why hasn't it happened already? We've got incredible ways waves here, but I think maybe that's part of the 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 issue is that we've got incredible waves, and so we kind of just get comfortable with yeah. Stay, stay and put in, in surfing waves rather than, you know, it's a difficult one to put yourself through the, the contest circuit at that level and, and to, to leave leave home. So I feel like, yeah, surfers in Ireland have pretty close ties to Ireland that maybe hampers their <laughs> more global exploits. But I don't know. It's a good question. I think where we're seeing it, actually, and it's all, we're already seeing it, um, is in the big wave arena, mm, for totally. sure. That's that's where it's happening. Yeah. And surfers I, I, like... You know, you get surfers like Conor Maguire just last season, that phenomenal um, day at, at Mullock Moor. Um, and yeah, then that his performance is built on the pioneering work of so many others. Garrett McDade is is also um, stepping up in big ways, but has made a really good stab on, on some of the, the pro tour events too. Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think in Irish culture, we have a, a kind of interesting relationship with in a way, it still seems like a little bit counterculture here. <laughs> Maybe that's well, something to do with it. Well, and I mean, I think the the desire to stay close to your home is not 100% unique to Ireland. I think you see that a lot with, you know, whether it's Hawaiians or, or people in Indonesia. It's when you, when you love mm. your home and you love surfing at home, it's very, very hard as you intimately understand, like traveling the world to pursue qualification. And I think that's one of the things we're actually trying to address in the redesign of the tours and competition framework is stabilizing and giving people regional opportunities to to build up their experience and make that decision if they want to travel internationally. And, and you know, I hope we're mm. going to get there. The second question uh, comes from a, a ringer inside inside job here. Uh, Jesse Miley Dyer asks, <laughs> oh, <no>. did you <laughs> enjoy <laughs> this question can go a dozen different ways. Did you enjoy traveling with her in her Volvo as a junior surfer? <laughs> oh, Jesse. <laughs> 
Um, of course. What, what else can I say? That? Yeah, no, I think actually it was amazing. I first met Jesse Miley Dyer on a, a surf trip, the first kind of international trip I did away from home, age 16, to Tahiti. And we surfed chokes. Uh, we were like 15, 16 years old. Um, Nev Hyman, surfboard shaper of mine at the time, somehow coordinated this pack of teenage girls to make it there from all corners of the world um but yeah we had a blast that was the so that jesse really for me was that first meeting of another female surfer my age she was just like so gung-ho and absolutely ripping um so she was just really good to spar off and um yeah and then also to counter that you know i come all the way from ireland and doing the like the pro junior series say in Australia and places and, and in Europe, it was just so good to have a buddy. Yeah. We'll have to get together again and do a Volvo uh, trip. Uh, <laughs> I've told her West coast of Ireland. <laughs> All right. And the final question from the Instagram community that we are going to ask is from Sully Ray, one, two, three, who asks early two thousands Bundaran or 2021 Bundaran. Oh, <laughs> I figured you would know it. I figured you know, would know what this question meant. I kind of was like, oh, well, it probably means something. Bundarung. 2021. <laughs> it's got, surely 2021. It's the year of possibility, right? <laughs> All right, let's go. I'm good with that. We're forward facing here. All right, so those are the Instagram community questions. Thanks to all our listeners who sent those in. And for the final segment, we have the lightning round presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold, which is 10 questions. Answer as fast as you can. Oh dear, right. Should do should have done this at the start, Dave. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Energy's waning. All right. If you could have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless, which would it be? Oh, that's so hard. Twin. Just because that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Tea. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. Last book you read. Oh. Current book is Breathe. Best surf film ever. Oh, Litmus. One wave you never have to go back to. Oh, Costa de Caparica. <laughs> Sorry. If you only get to surf one wave the rest of your life. Oh, I'm not allowed to say. West coast of Ireland. <laughs> Best person to share the lineup with. My dad. Worst person to share the lineup with? Oh. <laughs> um, well, a shark, I suppose. <laughs> totally fair. Uh, last question, or last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... I will next achieve a state of happiness by taking my little niece down to the sea to do what we call wave running. She just learned how to walk. <laughs> so we chase waves. Perfect answer. Well, Eski Britton, thank you so much for coming on the lineup. Thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, thank you for the conversation. Where can listeners uh, check out and support what, what you do day in and day out? Yeah, the best way to connect is my website, uh, eskibritton.com. Uh, maybe get the spelling in the show notes. Well, we will put it in the promotion notes, no problem. <laughs> or uh, Instagram at, at EskiSurf. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Eski Britton. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'm sure it was obvious, but it's been one of my favorites. 
Please make sure you check out Eski and her work at eskibritton.com. That's E-A-S-K-E-Y-B-R-I-T-T-O-N.com. This episode is produced by Ryan Fawcett with art direction by Jason Penning, copywriting by Dan Willen, and additional support by Henry Baer. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that it was recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash and the Keech de Wagner Native American people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup.